0: Well, good morning. good morning. It's great to see all of you here in this morning of worship. We're going to continue our series of Ageless God, Modern Message. And just as I had said uh, last week, I think that one of the unique things that we have when we consider... The role of a, a Sunday message and what we're asking people to do in an all church study is that usually these types of things, the group experience will support whatever shared on the Sunday morning, but, uh, but this particular series is different where Pastor Steve and I will share on Sunday morning and reinforce really the work that you are doing on a daily basis in your readings throughout John and in your group setting as you share and, and learn what it means to pray the scriptures. And so, uh, as you can see on the back of your program, your bulletin here, it shows those daily readings for this week, and uh, reading plan for starting February 10th, and hopefully you've been able to key in, at least on some of these. And we've been hearing some just amazing reports of people sharing. There's no greater thing, honestly, as a pastor to hear than when someone in a group setting says, I really feel like the Lord has impressed me. On my heart that this or or that the other. to know that God is that we 're helping to create conditions where the Holy Spirit is speaking to you directly is such a great joy of, of mine as as a pastor and so uh, we 're just grateful for all the work that 's going on in in our groups, and uh, just grateful that that people are starting to hear what the Lord might say to them and so what I want to do is you can see here on Uh, Thursday's reading says John 8, 1 through 11. I'm gonna share with you a little bit from Thursday's uh, reading. So if you wanna turn to John chapter eight, starting with verse one. I'm gonna read for us John 8, 1 through 11. And as you're turning there... I uh, just want to give you a little bit of context and set, set the stage a little bit for you. Because whenever we read scripture, and I mentioned this uh, a couple years, uh, couple a couple weeks ago, that when we approach a gospel, it's important to remember that these are, you know, before they're historians or even storytellers, they're evangelists. And the goal that they uh, came about to, to put the stories together to tell the story of Jesus is so that people would read the story and hear the story and believe. And so the way in which John goes about telling the story of Jesus is important to us and it should speak to us uh, specifically on, on not just how God would speak directly to our hearts and our lives and our context because God does that. Isn't that amazing how this was written so long ago and it still speaks life and and truth into our hearts and to our lives. It is a modern message. It is an ageless God, but a modern message. But yet, at the same time, we we are covering stories and events that happened long ago and happened in a particular context and place and people in the world, in, in the past. And so it's important to remember those types of things. And specifically when we read John 8, the religious context that Jesus entered into. Jesus entered in a specific time and place in Judaism and addresses many of the issues surrounding Judaism and the people that were promoting what they had made of the faith in that day. You can't separate that out. You can't take that out of what, how the scripture is presented to us. And that in itself should speak to us and how we think of our religious practice and expression. When I say religious, I just simply mean that in a generic sense. How we look at faith, how we look at God and how we practice faith, it should inform us and how we approach faith in our lives today. So keep that in mind as we approach John chapter eight verses one through 11. It says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there Jesus straightened up again and asked her woman where are they has no one condemned you no one sir she said then neither do i condemn you Jesus declared go now and leave your life of sin So about that Super Bowl halftime show. <laughs> now I I didn't actually see the halftime show. Um, we were driving, you know, kids only last a certain amount of time, and we were at a friend's watching the game, and so we were traveling back during halftime. But I heard about it. <laughs> oh, I heard about it. I'm sure you did too. There were lots of people who were crying out about you know, how inappropriate it was and, you know, how people were dressed and how they performed and all of that. And then there, of course, you know, because this is a day and age where everything gets debated back and forth on social media and all the access that people have to strangers and conversations took place about what was appropriate, what was inappropriate, and some people would say this was entirely inappropriate, the way that they were dancing and acting out and all of those different things, and other people say you just don't know Latin dancing, this is how it is, you should just get with the times, and people back and forth, back and forth, and it really signals really about how even people of faith, it signals how these types of conversations crop up because it's not just this specific event. It could be lots of different things. There was a debate recently that same kinds of things, debating the question, trying to figure out where is that line between right and wrong? Like, where, where is that line in the sand where on one hand we say this is appropriate and on the other hand we say this is inappropriate? Or on one hand, where is this, where is the line where it says this is of God, this is God endorsed, but on the other hand we say this is ungodly. This is not of God. And we wrestle with that We wrestle with our ethical lines, our moral lines, particularly when it comes to specific instances. Now, all of us have a general sense of what's wrong and what's right, but when it comes to those particulars, there's a lot of conversation. And I use that conversation a little bit loosely because we know that they're more than conversations, right? Somehow we know that these conversations are important because we feel strong feelings about them. (laughs) and voices rise, and get louder, and there's name calling back and forth, it doesn't matter what, it could be all kinds of different issues, and it all centers around disagreement as to what is truly right, and what is truly wrong, or what is good for society, what is not good for society. This is an important recognition, that we as people of faith, we We are engaged in these conversations, and we should be. They are important conversations, and we know that they're important because we feel strong feelings about them. But, as John 8, 1 through 11 will tell us, it also comes with a series of cautions in our efforts to figure out where that line is between what is right and what is wrong. And we might get challenged by Jesus in this, as we think about what, re- what it means to have faith and practice it, what it means to believe in God and live for God, when we create the structures of our lives, the expectations, the assumptions, how we do church, when we go about our way living for God and living out God's ways, creating our religion and its expression, I wonder if Jesus would have something to say to us in that pursuit. So as we pull apart and tease out and look at these specific scriptures, these, this story in John chapter eight, I, I want us to have something in the back of our minds, something that we can hold and it's gonna show itself throughout the, the story in a variety of different places. And, and, and this, this is, it's a, it's a truth that the scripture offers us, that there is a difference between knowing good and being good. There's a difference between knowing good and being good. Now this will come it will come to the surface and show itself specifically through the opponents of Jesus. They are the Pharisees, and many of you know that that word and that name throughout the, all of the gospels. These were the people that Jesus opposed and confronted all throughout his ministry. We should give them a little bit of a break because what they, the place that they have come, the religion that they have created for themselves, the expectations, the assumptions that they had created it, at that time in the first century in uh, Jerusalem in you know what is now modern day Palestine, what they had made for themselves was historical. it came from a place it was handed down from them 100, about one hundred and fifty years before Jesus came on the earth, there was a great a tragedy that happened amongst the Jewish people. A ruler named Antiochus, who's a Greek ruler, he came in, he desecrated the temple, and he outlawed any religious expression of what it meant to be a faithful Jew in that day. And out of that came a rebellion by the by, uh, name of a guy named Mattathias Maccabee and his five sons, and they, they started this rebellion, and they won. It was an incredible victory against this foreign ruler. And in response to all the things that were taken away from them and prohibited in their religious experience, the way that they practiced their faith, they were now going to institute that and they started by going right back into that temple and lighting the menorah candle, which is why Jews today celebrate Hanukkah in celebration of God's deliverance in that case. And not only did they reinstitute the order and the life and the practice of the faith, they doubled down on it. They celebrated it. And they said, this is what it truly means to be free, to live as a person of God, to practice these different things. And we shouldn't take them for granted because they could be taken away from us. And fast forward over the years, it began to develop a hyper focus on these rules, on these rites, on these rituals, that if you just simply practice them to the letter, to the very letter of the law, then that's what it means to be faithful. And out of that movement came this group, the Pharisees who were known to be the most holy, the most connected to God, the most uh, knowledgeable about what it means to live the very letter of the law. But there is a difference between knowing what is good and being good. In John, as he tells the story of Jesus, we begin to catch wind of the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in John chapter seven because there is a beginning to be a great debate as to who this person Jesus really is. He's starting to perform miracles. He's starting to teach with great wisdom, leaving people in awe and wonder of all the things that he's saying. And then there were murmurs cropping up amongst the communities. Could this be it? Could this be the Messiah that we've been longing for. And some were saying, he is. And some were saying, I'm not so sure. And particularly the Pharisees were not too keen on the idea of crowning Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. There's a great difference between what knowing good and being good. And in John chapter 7, we get this sort of question of doubt on the Pharisees, as much as they were considered to be uh, holy and righteous and capable of being adequate judges for the people, of telling people what's, where that line is, what is right, what is wrong, what is godly, what is ungodly. They were the authorities in that day. There's a question of doubt that begins to spring up, centered around who Jesus is. And so what we find in John chapter 8 is an illustration, an example of how the judgment of the Pharisees should not be trusted. There's a difference between knowing good and being good, and that is true for us as well. I mentioned that most of us, we we have a general, all of us have a general sense of, of right and wrong, but as we look at this through the lens of our faith, like just for example, how many of you have the Ten Commandments memorized? Or you know you could just list most of them off? Or, or how many of you feel like the Ten Commandments are important? Okay, so most of you would say, most of you say, Let, let's take a look at some of these just to maybe refresh your memory of this. Or maybe some of you just need to go back to Sunday school. We've got our third and fourth grade Sunday schools to recover this. You can go back. Anyways, sorry, that wasn't a slight. I just was a Reminder. So 10 commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make no idols, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain, keep the Sabbath day holy, honor your father and your mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet, Uh, you shall make... Um, oh, You shall not covet. So those are the ten, and most of us would res- at least say that they're important. But some people in Christian circles would say this is so important we should be, have, you know, still fighting to have them in our civil buildings and and uh, you know courthouses and, and all of that because it is so in- important. But uh, just as a as an illustration, and there's no hands or anything like that, but I just want to ask you, how are we doing with these? How are we doing? How about this one? I'm just going to pick a few of them out. You shall make no idols. Okay, so I, I get that most of you would not have some sort of, you know, tiki image in your bedroom that you pray to at night, you know. But is there something that you have elevated above the place of God in your life? How are we doing with that one? How about this one? This one might sting a little bit. Keep the Sabbath day holy. What are your plans for the day? How are we doing with this one? How about this one, next one? You shall not covet, shall not covet. Now We might know these, but living into them is a whole nother, there's a difference between knowing what is good and being good ourselves, and what the Pharisees sought to do is to be a gatekeeper over that line, that boundary, that wall between what is, what is good and what is not good, what is godly, what is ungodly. They were the gatekeepers, and they were going to not only establish those lines, they were going to tell each person who was in and who was out. They were going to be the gatekeepers, and in being the gatekeepers, they failed to see two specific things that are critically important, that speaks to us today, that when we look at the lines between good and evil, and we use those to think of our faith and how we practice our faith, we need to understand these two important pitfalls. The first is, if, that, if we are going to be a gatekeeper, we need to understand that we're gonna be the first one to be seen by outsiders. That the outside world will see us first If we are the gatekeepers, our hearts, our lives will be exposed before anybody else's. This is dangerous for us because, and just as Jesus had said, judge not lest you also be judged. That's how it works. And he warns Throughout all of his ministry, we read in all four Gospels, there's one sin that he seems to just really pay attention to the most, and specifically when he's interacting with these people, the Pharisees. He says in Mark chapter 8, he says, "Be, Be weary, be leery of the yeast of the Pharisees, specifically hypocrisy. The yeast of the Pharisees. And in that day, that he was telling the disciples this, and they didn't understand. He said, maybe he's mad that we didn't bring him enough bread for dinner. Beware. The yeast of the Pharisees. Phariseeism, hypocrisy is the one sin that Jesus seems to target the most and I feel like it is one of the things that we hide away the most here as people of faith here today. We are the first to be seen. We are the first to be exposed. And so it should not surprise us that when statistics show us that the top reasons for why people will leave the faith or refuse to enter into the faith what will they say? Hypocrisy. Hypocriti in the Greek. It is the thing that Jesus warns us most about. That yes, we have important standards, we have an important line between what is of God and what is not of God. But if we are not careful, if we decide to be the gatekeepers, it's going to show our hearts for what it truly is. The second pitfall or caution that we find is that if we are, if we choose to be gatekeepers, we can so easily fall into the trap of pointing the finger on those outside the walls or focusing on the gates themselves and forgetting why they exist in the first place. We can be so hyper-focused on the rules and who's in and who's out that we forget about the enjoyment, to even enjoy the, the fruitful life that God offers us in the first place. So the Pharisees, in their religious expression, it, it kind of shows itself for, for what it is, that their focus had been so fixated on the boundaries, on that line, on the rules. And they believed in that so much that they were willing to bend those things just to prove a point when it comes to Jesus. It's a couple of questions as you're reading this scripture that The Pharisees, you know, they bring up the the law of Moses. They bring the woman who was caught in adultery, and they say, by the law of Moses, this woman needs to be stoned to death, except that they had forgotten to include other important parts of the law of Moses. Let me just ask you, where's the guy In this story, Uh, the law of Moses suggests that that there is ample punishment for the man in some scriptures only focuses on the man's role in this situation. Where's the trial that the law of Moses affords someone who stands under such accusations? They revealed their religion for what it was to be gatekeepers, forgetting what the law was meant to be in the first place. The reason why God gives a series of prohibitions called the Torah, the law, over 600 laws, was specifically out of an expression of a promise of what what God did in the first place, which was to say, I am going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. We're going to live in covenant. We're going to live in relationship with one another, and as a nation, here's what that looks like. Here are the set of rules that you can live by to live in this covenant with me. They are highly relational and less judicial than we think this should resonate with us because a a life in jesus is not just about righteous living and sin avoidance it's not i'm not going to go to my wife and say honey i love you so much that i chose not to commit adultery today isn't it so much more Isn't it so much more, the rich and the full communion that we share with God, isn't it so much more than that gate, that line between what is good and what is not good? Jesus confronts the Pharisees in their own hypocrisy and upon that confrontation, if you have no sin. If you are without sin, go ahead, throw, throw the first stone. And all of a sudden, they leave one by one, the oldest first they knew, the oldest first, until Jesus was left all alone. If we choose to be gatekeepers, we can so easily fall into the trap of creating a faith and its practice simply around the rules and the do's and the don'ts. And then we fail then. And we forget what we're inviting people to be a part of in in the first place. What that rich life in Jesus Christ looks like in the first place. And so here's Jesus. He's now all alone with this woman and he straightens up again. He addresses her almost like in a separate scene of this story. And he asks her, has no one condemned you? He knew the answer, has no one condemned you? Now it's important to note in this question that the Pharisees, because of their sin, they were incapable of bringing down judgment and condemnation on this woman. But Jesus was the Messiah. He was the only one capable of bringing such judgment and condemnation on the woman, and yet, while he was the only one capable of doing it, chooses not to, and says, and neither will I, neither will I, neither will I condemn you. See, in that moment, God's kingdom added another soul, added another person. And it speaks to us how we create a faith and how we create a faith in its, in its practice and, and how we live it out. That while if we seek to be gatekeepers, we may or may not win people over to Jesus, but mercy is always the way upon which people enter into the kingdom of God. We might try Churches will try to moralize their community, to moralize the world, but they may not win people to Jesus. Because every person, everyone here, all of us have entered by way of the mercy of the Lord. Think about your life. Uh, think about your relationship with God. Were you able to moralize yourself into a relationship with God? Were you able to uphold a certain standard of living and, and that's what led you into a relationship with God? No. None of us can live up to our own standards that we believe in. And so it's simply and purely by way of mercy that we have faith and are able to live it out in a rich and vibrant relationship with God. You know, being gatekeepers, it's not gonna win any culture wars and it may not advance the kingdom of God. But just like this woman that was caught in adultery, God's way of mercy, that's what propels the kingdom. Because the kingdom thrives with more people in it. The kingdom thrives with more people in it. Um, I was, uh, I've shared this before, but when I was young in my faith and still growing, I didn't realize that I was young in the faith and still growing and I thought I knew everything. And I've shared this before, I was in my college years, I was the worst Christian you would ever wanna meet. I was a Pharisee. I was extremely judgmental. I loved pointing the finger at everybody else and of course it was my own fear, my own insecurity. It was a lot easier to point the finger at somebody else than to expose what was going on in my own heart. And then in my junior year I decided to, I I was a German major and in my junior year I studied in Salzburg, Austria. So I was removed out of this sort of, this, this faith that I built for myself and I was all alone and my faith showed itself for what it was and it wasn't much. And I was lonely and I was looking for attention and I began to live a life, live a lifestyle and I became the person that my prior self had been pointing the finger at. Now I'm not gonna tell you that this was all the Lord's doing but I can tell you that I learned something so important about what it means to be a child of God and to live out faith. I was full of shame. I, could not meet the standards of God's approval that I had set up for myself in my prior religion. And I was full of shame and condemnation. But over, slowly, over the next few months, God began to shepherd me and minister to me and love on me. And I truly began to understand the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ in a way that I had never Never experienced prior to that. You see, it was the mercy of the Lord that brought me closer to him. It was the mercy of the Lord that got, brought me into a fuller knowledge of who God is and what God desires for my life. It was his mercy. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus makes this declaration, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, not call the righteous, but the sinners and then as people who can understand the mercy of God now are able to share and participate in as God shows mercy to the other adulterers in the world around us or sinners or cheaters or liars or whatever, pick your topic. (laughs) People of mercy showing mercy, people of mercy participating in mercy. As we close, I. if you want to turn to this, Luke chapter, um, Luke chapter five, starting with verse eight to ten, uh, Jesus is calling uh, and c- coming to uh, one of his disciples, and uh, it's a Simon Peter, and they're out fishing, and he says, "Hey, why don't you just um, why don't you cast on the other side and um." And he creates this this, uh, miracle that reveals himself. And uh, Peter, in the face of this miracle, realizes the holiness and and, and the majesty of this this person, Jesus. He's suddenly frightened. Here's what it says. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Watch his response. Go away from me. Go away from me. He was so filled with shame, so filled with condemnation of what Jesus' glory revealed about his own heart and his own life that he could do nothing but say, go away from me. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then this is what Jesus, Jesus says this. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And let's go fish for other people. If we are receive God's mercy, if we understand God's mercy, then we participate it and we share in it for those around us. Don't be afraid. Let's go fish for people. Let's take the mercy that we have received in Jesus and share it with the world. Don't be afraid. Let's go fish for people. Warren Wiersbe, um, scholar and, and author, and Bible scholar, he says, when a Christian shows mercy, he experiences liberation. We're participating in the very actions and very character of God. What have we made our faith of? What do we focus on? What do those outside the walls see as most important to us? And are we Reci- recipients and, and sharers of God's mercy. Let's, let's pray together. So God, as people, as people of your fold, as your children, help us to be people of mercy. To receive your mercy and out of that receiving, share it to those around us. Help us and, and forgive us for being Pharisees. and Help us shine your light into this world with your mercy. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and celebrate the mercy of our God this morning? And praise the Lord. His mercy is one That bottom or shore and our sins they are made He constantly, what Father so tender is calling us home. We welcome the weakest, the vilest, the poor. And our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. So, as you have received the mercy of the Lord, go out, fish for people, and share the mercy of Jesus Christ. Go in his name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.